Well, I want to talk about the word must because the word must is in a category by itself when you think about it. Um, you know, if you tell me I should do something, it's still elective. If you tell me it's advisable that I do something, well, then I understand that conventional wisdom suggests that I do it, but a lot of people have made great strides by defying conventional wisdom. Uh, if you tell me I can do something, I understand it's totally elective. But if you tell me I must do something, you just told me something. You said if I don't do it, there are going to be consequences. That's the nature of when you must do something. In fact, we turn that word into a noun. How many of you lead or are you, you own a business or you manage a team, and you're giving instructions at the beginning of the day, and you say, well, here's our agenda, and this is what we need to accomplish today, and then you say, but this is a must. What you're saying is if you don't get it done, there are negative consequences. So must is just a very, very powerful word. Um, it, it just means if I don't get this done, I'm going to have an issue. For instance, if you're applying, some of you are about to start the uni- uh, one of our local universities, um, and you sit down with registrar, you sit down with your counselor, and, and they're saying this is your degree program, you, gotta, you must have these credit hours to graduate. There's some electives over here you can take underwater basket weaving if you want to. It's not part of your program. not going to hurt you. You pay for it. But now, this is a, you, you, you must have this course. Well, if you don't have that course, you can't graduate. If, um, if the federal government tells us that you must pay a certain percentage of your income to uh, taxes, if you don't pay that, uh, they'll come get you and put you in prison. And if you are told, as we are, that you cannot drive an automobile without having liability insurance, if you don't have liability insurance, you won't be able to drive. So that's just the nature of the word must. It means that there are consequences if we fail to do what we are told we must do. Now, I don't know how you feel about that word. You know, the thing about must is somehow it has an effect on my attitude if I let it. I, I love to read. I've always loved. I mean, I cannot, even to this day, I cannot sit still and just do nothing. I have to have, I have books all around me. I have, I, you know, I have Kindles and everything. I just constantly read. I've been that way since I was, uh, I mean, by the time I was seven years old, I was already reading classics. I love to read. Except when I was in college and I was told, you have to read it. You must read it. it was, is it just me or all of a sudden don't want to read it anymore? I mean, I was told I must read things I was actually interested in, but the moment the professor said you must do it, changed my attitude. And the reason why I want to go here today is when I tell you the one must that Jesus said you and I must do, I don't want it to affect our attitude. But at the same time, we will back away from that and we'll realize it's very important because if your mother-in-law tells you you must do something, you may not have to really do it. That's news to some of you. You didn't know that. I mean, you, drove, you didn't realize you drove all the way to church just to hear that. That's a revelation. <laughs> and for those of you who have teenage kids, I just need you to understand when your teenage kid tells you you must do something, you don't necessarily have to do it. So, I mean, here's the deal. All those musts that we get told about, we can still analyze them. But when Jesus Christ stands before us and says, you must well, that's pretty big. Hebrews chapter 4.13 tells us why it's big. It says, everything is naked and open before the one to whom we're going to give an account. So if Jesus is the one ultimately that we're going to stand at the finish line and have to give an account someday, and he is the one who said, you must, then it's a must. And I want to talk to you today about Jesus' ultimate must. He said, you must be born again. This comes from the chapter that has the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. It was in that context that Jesus said, you must be born again. For the last 2,000 years, 
Men and women who have spoken for God have looked at congregations and said, you must be born again because there is no bigger must. John Wesley, some of you come from a Methodist tradition, but John Wesley, when he was preaching, you know, back in the 18th century, he was preaching all over Wales and Scotland and Britain, and he, he, all the time he would take his theme, you must be born again. You know, what's he preaching on? You must be born again. All over the continent he was preaching, you must be born again. Came to America, and he preached, you must be born again. Finally, some very well-heeled people got a hold of him, and they said, um, preacher, we don't know if you know this, but you're preaching the same message all the time. And why do, you, why do you insist on preaching, you must be born again? And Wesley thundered out, because you must be born again. <laughs> and that's true. But a moment ago, you remember when I said that when we're told that we must do something, that it sometimes affects our attitude toward that? Maybe we need to back away from that just a moment and realize that Jesus' must is different from every other must in our life. Because the one thing Jesus says you must do is the one thing you crave more than anything else. He said you must start life over again. You must start life with fresh power. You must start a new life. And I don't know about you, but that's what I crave more than anything else. I would love so much to start fresh. I would love so much to lose my resume of sin. I would love so much to lose my litany of failures. I would love so much to lose the encyclopedia of bad decisions in my life. So when Jesus says to me, Mark, you must be born again, I'm hearing that like, you must take this million dollars. Well, if I must. <laughs> you must take this all-expense-paid vacation in Cabo. Well... If I got to do it, I got to do it. <laughs> you got to realize this is so cool. The one thing Jesus says you must do is the one thing that all of us desperately crave more than anything else. He said, you must be born again. So where do we find this in the Bible? I want you to look in the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at the last one, the gospel of John. This is chapter three. And some people would call this, if not the greatest chapter in the Bible, at least one of the three greatest chapters in the Bible. Okay, let's read a little bit of the story, and it'll help us see how we get to you must be born again. Verse 1, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we know that God has sent you to teach us. Your, your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Three verses later, in verse 7, Jesus would say, you must be born again. Now, if you grew up in church like me, you're so accustomed to those words. You've heard them so many times. It's just sort of like, it's like listening to white noise. That's a shame because this is so important. Let me see if I can kind of put you in the situation. Uh, in 1802, there was a man born by the name of Alfred Edersheim. He was Jewish and he grew up in the Jewish tradition, but then he came to Jesus Christ. And now he had both those traditions in his life, both the Christian faith, but his Jewish tradition. And he wrote, and I know this is not about theology, but theologians consider the seminal book on the culture and the times of Jesus Christ. Alfred Adersham wrote the Mountain Peak book, Life and Times of Jesus, the Messiah. And in that book, because of his Jewish background, he sort of puts us into the scene. And I love what Adersham says about this. He says, you have to imagine that it's a warm April night in Jerusalem. And the streets are empty because people had a fear. And some of you remember reading this in Shakespearean literature and in certain maybe Roman writers. The people had a feeling that the night air was dangerous. So consequently, they went in. When the sun went down, they went inside. 
So Edersheim tells us about Jerusalem. It's a warm night. The wind is blowing through the streets of Jerusalem, but you can't tell where the wind's coming from or where it's going. It's just sort of blowing out there on a warm evening. And he said there was a solitary figure walking down the streets. And that solitary figure is kind of interesting. He's probably the last person you would expect to be seeing walking late at night all by himself. His name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must understand, is at that moment probably the greatest Bible scholar in the world. The reason I draw that is that he was considered the leading teacher in Israel, which would have meant he was the leading teacher in Jerusalem. And considering that Jerusalem was the epicenter of God followers, that would have probably meant Nicodemus was the leading expert on the Bible in the world. He was also a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a strange group of people. There were never more than 6,000 of them, but they were ultra-religious. And they started out with this idea, we're going to keep every law of God. And if that's not enough, we're going to make up some laws. And they became the elite of Israel. Everybody looked up to them. But as you know, if you've been in traditional religion, one of the problems with traditional religion is very hard to live up to. It's easier to learn the dogma than to live up to the lifestyle. And so the Pharisees, wanting to make sure they kept all the laws, they came up with all kinds of encyclopedias on how to <laughs> obey the law, but with, with exemptions for themselves. I mean, for instance, on the Sabbath, they had a work that was 24 volumes, 24 chapters on the Sabbath day. And then there was this lengthy encyclopedia that gave exceptions to that. So basically, they could say they were keeping the rules, but they really didn't keep the rules. And they were just a mess. And Nicodemus was a member of that group. We also know that there was a senate in those days of 70 members, as I've shared with you many times. Rome really, when they conquered people, they didn't care so much about local government as long as they got their tax money, as long as there were no riots. And so as long as people paid their tax money and didn't start any trouble, Rome was pretty happy to let certain people groups govern themselves. And so the Jewish people had, for a while, had what they called a Sanhedrin. It was a senate made up of 70 members. Almost all of them were Pharisees. And Nicodemus was one of these guys. So I've said all that to you so that you will puzzle like me. Why would this man be walking late at night when the streets are empty? I mean, after all, he was a celebrity in town. Nicodemus was a rock star. If you wanted to know something about the Bible, you would just, oh, that I could have five minutes with Mr. Nicodemus. But you can't get in to see him. I mean, he's the elite of the elite of the elite. He's like the pastor of the biggest megachurch in the city. And yet he's walking at night. Adersheim tells us that most likely Jesus was staying in an upstairs apartment. There were stairs outside the house that would allow the person in the upstairs apartment to leave without being seen, arrive without being noticed. So Nicodemus, he's looking for the house number now. It's warm April night, the wind's whipping down the streets, looking for that. There, there's the house number. And quietly, he begins to walk up the stairs. See, Nicodemus, even though he is a brilliant man and knows more about the Bible than you and I will ever begin to know, he's got a problem. See, and some of you will recognize this real quickly. You know, although Nicodemus was in a group of, of hypocrites, of ultra-religious elitist Pharisees, Nicodemus was real. He wasn't a hypocrite. Any of you who grow up in religion, and it was a traditional religion with a lot of rules and a lot of hoops, and you saw a lot of hypocrisy, but you weren't a hypocrite. You just wanted to know God. And this religion says this is how you can know God. And so you, you just said, okay, if this is what it takes, this is what I'll do. I'll jump through these hoops. I'll go to these classes. I'll learn the answers to these questions. I'll memorize this stuff. And you did all that, and at the end of the day, 
Well, here's the thing about anyone who's sincere, whether we're talking about a sincere God follower or a sincere non-theist. Being sincere in a dead religion will always leave you with a confused emptiness. And there's Nicodemus. He's learned all this stuff. He's a brilliant mind. He's a genius. But he realizes he doesn't have the the understanding of life. What is life all about? And along comes this 33-year-old guy that the only job he's held has been a carpenter. He hasn't been to seminary. He's not a member of the Senate. He's not considered a lead. He just comes out of nowhere. And he upsets the apple cart. And especially he upsets Nicodemus' friends because they're all phony. And this guy's coming along and his messages are simple, but they're powerful. And he's not talking about extraneous rules that don't make any difference. He's talking about the real attitudes of men and women's hearts that lead to darkness and how they can turn around. And then beyond that, he's just interesting. I mean, when groups of people gather around him, there are people who are sight impaired that can suddenly see. There are people who can't hear who can suddenly hear. There are paralyzed people who can walk. And I'm not talking about this faith healer junk we see on television with the headsets and all that stuff. I mean, this was really happening. And here's the one you couldn't fake at all. Dead people coming back to life. Now, Nicodemus' friends hated Jesus. In fact, they were looking for ways to kill him. So as Nicodemus climbs the stairs, he's trying to think about how this conversation is going to go. I mean, really, he's only there for two reasons, at least in his mind. He's there because he wants to tell Jesus that he's not with the rest of them. He wants to give Jesus the good housekeeping soul of approval and say, I'm not like all my friends. And the second thing he's hoping to do is to engage Jesus in a dialogue about theology and maybe somewhere in that dialogue find the missing piece, although Nicodemus will certainly not reveal it to Jesus. He's just kind of hoping Jesus will have that. I see that sometimes. People will come to my office and hope that perhaps in a conversation I'll happen to say the thing that will like trigger their switch. So he's climbed the steps. He's almost to the top. And Nicodemus is not worried about the conversation. He's, He's used to not having to start conversations. He's a a celebrity. Nicodemus knows how this will go down. He he will come and he will knock on the door and Jesus will open the door and say, I can't believe it's you. I mean, this is so cool. Nicodemus, in my house. My goodness, you're a rock star. Would Would you come into my, this is my favorite recliner. Would you please sit here? I can't believe Nicodemus is at my house. And that Nicodemus knows how that will go. He wouldn't have to start the conversation. The door opens. I hope God keeps all this stuff on videotape because I want to see this so bad or hologram or whatever they have in heaven. And he's Nicodemus at the door and Jesus comes to the door and Jesus stands there. And there's a knowing smile that says, why are you here? And there's a twinkle in his eye that says, I know why you're here. Jesus doesn't say anything. After all, he didn't ask for an appointment on Nicodemus. Nicodemus was there to see him, so Jesus kind of. Can you hear Nicodemus stammer? Um, um, Rabbi, um, um, I'm I'm not with all my friends. I I know they hate your guts and they want to kill you, but I'm not with them. Um, And we know that you're a teacher and, and, and you had to come from God because if you didn't come from God, you couldn't do all this stuff that you do. See Jesus stand there and look at him. Nicodemus, you're going to have to be born again. Bam! 
No messing around, no fooling around, no playing any games, no religious banner, no small talk. Jesus just said, Nicodemus, I know your problem. You're going to have to be born all over again. Well, Nicodemus is on defense now. I mean, he's, he's trying to figure out what to do with this conversation. So he does what intellectuals do. He poses two questions, and these two questions are calculated in such a fashion to suggest that Jesus' statement has been unrealistic. The first question that Nicodemus asks, and maybe you have this question too, not, not with a bad motive, but when Jesus says you must be born again, you may have the question that Nicodemus had. Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I know about all kinds of religious stuff. I know about rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and books about rules and commentaries on the books about rules, but born again? What are you talking about? So then Jesus begins to answer his question. And so if you're wondering what it means to be born again, then we can see Jesus' answer in John 3. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God or heaven without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans only reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. Okay, time out. Let's pull over to the side of the road. Let's talk. For the last 2,000, well, not 2,000 years completely. I mean, maybe about... 1,700 years, the so-called church has wrestled with that stuff about water and spirit. And there have been those who said, well, it's about baptism. Now, one thing I've discovered, guys, in my 44 years of preaching and my 40 years of pastoring is if you give religion time, it can screw up anything. And nothing has been as screwed up as baptism, <laughs> I've got to tell you. Because when you study the scriptures in the Bible, baptism is very simple. It's universal, it only happens one way. Baptism in the Bible always happens after salvation. It is a tangible symbol that something has changed in your life that is intangible. For instance, if at the end of this service you decide you want to be born again, you can pray and receive Jesus and no one would ever know it. You don't say anything. You may not even blink your eyes, but in your heart you're praying a prayer to God. No one sees this very personal, very private. But God wanted to work something out so that there would be a public declaration of our faith and the way to go public with our faith, and that is believer's baptism. So in the Bible, nobody is baptized until after they accept Jesus Christ. They are placed below water, showing the death and burial of Jesus Christ, brought up out of the water, showing resurrection. Simple. Nobody else is baptized any other way in the Bible. But within 200 years, like I said, religion can screw up anything. The teaching began to be prevalent somehow that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, which is so, isn't that backward? Because it was meant to be a testimony of a change that has already happened, but somehow now that testimony has to be done in order to affect the change that baptism was supposed to recognize. This is crazy. But it began to be prevalent. You know, people begin to teach, well, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, that brought about a couple of really peculiar things. For one thing, some of the people in the church decided, well, wait a minute. If baptism washes all, the way, all my sins away up to that point, maybe I should wait and be baptized on my deathbed because that way all my sins will be passed. And there would just be a real economy to that. Now, we're chuckling, but by the third century, that was pretty prevalent. And there were others who said, no, 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 no. We got it all backwards. Let's not wait till the end of your life. Let's start at the very beginning of your life and let's baptize babies. Because after all, if baptism is what makes you a child of God, then let's baptize our babies. Well, of course, babies are innocent and they're taken care of by the grace of God. And ultimately, maybe someday they will make their decision, but it has to be their decision. 
And so we have all these traditions for baptized babies. And by the way, if that happened in your life, please don't fault your parents. They were just acting on the light that they received. And I believe God respects their heart and their willingness. But that's, I mean, with all due respect, that's kind of what we call dedication here at New Spring. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not what baptism is. So I want you to look at that. When Jesus said, by the way, we have a watermark weekend coming up, and some of you accepted Jesus, and you, you want to go public with your faith, you can just take the card, check the box, and we'll help you get the information on that. That's really cool. But now look at what Jesus said. You, you cannot enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. When you're reading the Bible, always remember this. The Bible will explain itself if you let it. And so look at what it says after that. Humans can only reproduce human life, and the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So consequently, those two comments reflect back on water and spirit. It's real simple. It's been a long time since my, my kids were born. But I remember when we were, when we also get close to the time of delivery, I remember, you know, we'd start getting everything packed for the hospital, and then there, when that time came, you start timing contractions. But boy, there's one sentence that can get you racing to the hospital. What is that sentence that a woman says? Yeah, you got it. My water broke. Boom, we're not going backwards now. <laughs> we're on our way. So you understand that when Jesus said, Nicodemus, you have to be born of water. Well, human birth, human life gives birth to human life. And you have to be born of spirit. Spiritual life gives spiritual life. That's why I'm telling you, you must be born again. So he's basically telling Nicodemus, you must have a spiritual rebirth. Well, now, Nicodemus has a second question. And he, he wants to know, how does this happen? And, and the thing about it is, Nicodemus is now starting to push back against Jesus a little bit. And he begins to frame the question in absurdity, as if to shut Jesus down. I have that happen to me sometimes. People will ask me a question, uh, especially if they're non-theist, and they will ask me a question that goes something like this. How can you say that you have a loving God who is all-powerful and evil exists? Evil disproves your God because evil proves either that your God is not all good but all-powerful or all-powerful but not all good. That question is set up in absurdity as an attempt to tilt the playing field. Well, of course, the Bible answers that question. We're going to be talking about it a lot in 2020. That absurdity does not disprove the existence of God. But Nicodemus is going to try that. Because Jesus has told him that he has to be born again. And Nicodemus says, I don't know how I can be born again. He said, am I supposed to go back in my mother's womb and be born again? I mean, Jesus is talking about spirituality. Nicodemus is talking about gynecology. I mean, he's asking Jesus, how does this happen? My mom's dead. You're telling me I have to be born again? In a way, he's trying to make it so absurd as if to make it not realistic. And you know what? There may be somebody listening to me today, South North Auditorium, somebody watching on television, somebody watching around the world online, and, and you have some kind of pushback against God. You've worked out an absurdity that you feel like disproves the person of God and his claims. Now, I want you to read Jesus' statement with me. And, and because this is probably the most important preaching I'll ever do in my life. Because Jesus is going to tell you and me how we can do or experience the one thing we must experience, how to be born again. If I'm talking to somebody here and you grew up in a traditional church and you struggle sometimes with knowing for sure that you're okay with God, we're going to solve that right now. You won't have to worry about it after this. Because you're going to see Jesus tell you how to experience the one thing that you must experience. Now, here's the thing. You help me count. I'm going to read Jesus' explanation. Help me count the times that Jesus refers to believing 
and refers to himself. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Okay, verse 16, most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, out of fingers on my left hand now, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son, and the judgment is based on this fact, God's light, that Jesus came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. Now, isn't this interesting? Eight mentions of Jesus in here and four mentions on our part, which is believing. I mean, how, I mean how, how, what else can Jesus do? When he talks about how to be born again, he's talking about believing in Jesus. Believing Jesus. I don't see anything there about joining a particular church. I don't see anything there about giving money to the church. I don't see anything there about having a list of rules. It's believing in Jesus. Now, real quickly, I want to give you what I consider to be the six most important facts in the universe that Jesus tells us in what we just read, okay? We'll go through these quickly. I wish we had time to just build a whole talk around them. The first one, God loved the world. He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. You and I are in the world. That means God loves us. No matter what you've done, God loves you. Second fact, he loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. You know what? I have three sons. I wouldn't give any of my sons for my best friend. And yet God gave his one and only perfect son for you and me. Three, I love this word, whoever. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, that means go to hell, but have everlasting life. Big fact. Here's number four. I love this one. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. You ever watch you know, one of these trial shows and you see the person waiting for the jury to come in and render a verdict? You see the fear on their face? I think some people approach God that way, and yet God is saying there's no judgment against anyone who believes on Jesus. There's no outstanding judgment. And now we come to that thing about believing. Now, one more time, number four was there's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I mean, I've asked, people have asked me, how do I know if I believed enough? How do I know if I believed right? How do, how do I know if I've done what God calls believing? Guys, I'm going to make this as simple as I possibly can because I've studied God's word and this is what I've discovered from the Bible, not from human, but from the Bible. There are three stages to believing, and they're, they're real simple. The first one's going to be so simple, you're going to kind of laugh. But the f- first part of believing is there has to be a message. You can't believe unless there's a message. There has to be a message for you to believe. I mean, you go home today and somebody said, what Mark wear? And you say, well, you know, some kind of lavender shirt, some blue jeans, some really weird-looking shoes. Well, there's a message now, and somebody can, can receive it. Okay, there has to be a message to, 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 what is the message? Well, the message is that God loves you, and that you're a flawed, broken person, and you can't save yourself. 
And religion won't save you. Anything else won't save you. You have to have Jesus. God sent his one and only son. That he came to the earth, lived a perfect life, ran the table for 33 years, never did one thing wrong, took that perfect life, laid it on a Roman cross, hung between heaven and earth for six hours. And the way God looked at it, the blood that came out of his body is a currency that pays for your sins. That's the message. Number two. Second part of believing is agreeing. Because see, I mean, the thing of it is, I'm not, I, I'm not being disrespectful, and, and I hope that I'm being friendly, but somebody can be hearing it, and you can say, man, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. You've heard you have a message to believe, but you got stuck right there. It's like, I don't, I really don't know. I mean, why did somebody have to die for me? And, and this thing about a person hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago, I don't really get it. And, and honestly, it can break down right there, boom. But then there is that moment where someone hears the story. The Bible says, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You hear the word of God, you agree. You say, well, I believe it's true. Don't understand it, but I believe it. I agree. But that's still not enough because there's this third thing. Let me give you a story. There's a story about a man who was a tightrope. You know, it was real big stuff, tightrope walking back in the early part of the 20th century, he strung this long wire tightrope again over uh, river falls. So crowd there gathered. He walked across it, walked back across it like he was just strolling down the street. Crowd was applauding. But to gin up the audience enthusiasm, he said, how many of you think I can push a wheelbarrow across? Well, there were people that weren't sure about that. So he climbed up with the wheelbarrow and he pushed the wheelbarrow all the way across the wire, across the river, and he brought it back. Crowd was really sure he was world's greatest tightrope walker at that point. So then he asked the crowd, how many of you think I can push a man in the wheelbarrow across the wire? And by this point, the crowd's willing to say yes. And everybody, just about everybody raised their hands. We believe, you could, we agree, you could push a man in a wheelbarrow across the falls. And he said, okay, well, let me have a volunteer. <laughs> that is the third part. The third part says there's a message to believe. I agree with God's message, and I am willing to commit my whole life to it. See, I'm not committing that I, I believe in Jesus, and I grew up Baptist. I believe in Jesus, and I grew up Catholic. I believe in Jesus, and I'm a nice person. I believe in Jesus, and I do all kinds of charitable things. You try to add anything to Jesus, and it all adds up to nothing. It's got to be Jesus only. It's totally committing to the gospel that God loves you. Jesus died for you. You put your confidence in him. I heard the message. I agreed with it. I commit my whole life to Jesus Christ. If I die in five minutes, I'm not worried about it because my soul is committed to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe. And the Bible says, whoever believes in him has no judgment. Whatever happened in your life that was wrong, whatever you did wrong, there was no judgment. Oh, gosh, I've just got a few more minutes, but I've got to go somewhere. Well, let me give you the other two facts, and, and they will lead to what I want to talk about. Number five, God did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but save it. Isn't that big? I mean, he could have sent his son in the world to condemn the world, but he explains why with the sixth fact. The world was already condemned. You know, someone has said, what do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Stay on the road. <laughs> I mean, listen to that one more time. God didn't send his one son into the world to condemn the world. The world was condemned already. It was condemned because of sin. Now, that raises a point, and some of you are out there, and you're wrestling with something, and you're very smart, and you're very bright, and you're insightful, and you're sitting out there, and you're thinking something like this. Well, wait a minute. 
If I believe what you're saying, I can have a relationship with God by trusting Jesus alone. But then the Bible's a very big book, and it's got all these commands about sin and what's right and what's wrong. And I've got cognitive dissonance between this idea that there's a gospel message in which I can be saved and all these things that are wrong or right that I either do or don't do. What's that about? I mean, if God is telling me I can be forgiven and freed and have a relationship with God by simply putting faith and trust in Jesus, what's that with all the other 66 books saying, this is sin, don't do it, this is right, do it? I mean, I don't understand the disconnect there. And I think this is one of the reasons why people in church oftentimes struggle back and forth between being confident and not being confident. Let me work through that with you for just a moment. Okay, this is in Romans chapter 3. The Bible says, obviously, the law, that's the Bible that has all the things about what we should do and shouldn't do. The law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. Somebody could be here to say, I don't need to be saved. I'll tell you what, you take a look at God's law and you'll see that you need to be saved. Because all those rules that God put in the Bible are there to keep us from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. That's you and me and everybody else and the rest of the seven billion people on the planet. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. I mean, sometimes I talk to people and say, do you know if you're going to heaven? They'll say, well, yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. I'm a pretty nice person. Well, look at that. Um, It says no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised to us in the writings of Moses and prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. I mean, God's word is to show us what is right and what is wrong. But the thing about it is, we do not have the power to do right until Jesus Christ comes into our life. So all those things in the Bible that show us what we're wrong, they're there to show us that we need a Savior. And I preach this today with great concern. Because I think we're in cosmic danger in America and the world for that matter. There are the two separate opposite horns of a dilemma that are huge threats to people being saved and having a relationship with God. Let me, let me tell you what they are real quickly. The first one is legalistic religion. Legalistic religion says, you gotta do all these things. We've talked about that. Well, we've already seen that isn't true. But it could be that some of you have come from that tradition and you're still struggling. So that's a horn on the dilemma. But the other horn is far bigger today and growing every day. And that horn goes something like this. Well, all those things that the Bible says are wrong or right, they're not important. How do we know it's right? And after all, I'm sympathetic with people who struggle with issues. And so consequently, I'm not going to say that anything is wrong because I am a good person and I don't judge and I'm tolerant and and I'm not exclusive. And so consequently, I'm not going to judge. Well, really, we shouldn't judge. I mean, that's God's business. But when God has made judgments on something, we're not judging to advance what God said. I mean, here's the thing. God's not looking for comments on his post. He he didn't care about that. He's God. But we live in this world today where it's like, 
And, and you see, here's the problem. Oh my goodness, I don't know if I can get this across to you. We live in a culture today that says that people who have sin and dysfunction in their lives, they don't have the power to change, so consequently, maybe change is not supposed to happen, and therefore, maybe God made us to do things that are wrong, and so I'm just gonna make everybody feel good and say that everything is okay with what you do. Well, the insanity of that is that the only way that you can truly change any wrong in your life is to have Jesus Christ into your life, and yes, it's true that without Jesus, people can't change. I mean, without truth, Without Jesus, I can't overcome my fear and anxiety. But we live in a world today where people are saying, well, I just don't want to say that anything is wrong because I am a good person. And yet the Bible tells us that all those things that are wrong are made are there to show us that we need a Savior. And if you don't tell people what they need to know, they won't know that they need a Savior. And if they don't know they need a Savior, they may never reach out to Jesus. I mean, here's the thing. If you went to see your doctor today and he determined that you were diabetic... And the doctor is thinking about you, and you're thinking, you know what, that, that's not going to be pleasant. You know, she's going to have to start having injections, and those aren't fun. And on top of that, you know, she's going to have to make some lifestyle changes. And being diabetic, she could feel excluded from the larger community. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to tell her that she's fine. Go out and just do anything you want to do, because I'm a good person. That doctor wouldn't be a good person. The doctor would be a monster. The doctor should be drummed out of the AMA. That doctor should have his credentials taken away, not be allowed to practice medicine. And yet, we have a whole world of Americans that's like, well, I just want everybody to feel good, and we don't tell the truth anymore. We're not good people. We're monsters. Just being straight. I mean, here's the thing. The Bible says all the stuff, the dysfunction in my life, in your life, whatever it is, whether it's religious dysfunction or pride or greed or sexual issues or lying or whatever it is, all the things that the Bible says that convict us of what we're doing wrong, the Bible says those things are there to show us that we're guilty before God and we need Jesus in our lives. Well, how did Nicodemus take all this? I really don't know. I think he still struggled with a little bit. But there's good news. I'm going to tell you what Jesus told Nick. Nick, Nicodemus still couldn't figure this out. So Jesus told about something that happened in the Old Testament. Thought maybe Nicodemus would sync up with that. And he reminded Nicodemus of the story where the Israelites complained against God in the desert. And God sent snakes, thousands of poisonous snakes. I'd get my attention. I hate snakes. Like I've always said, the two kinds of snakes are those that will hurt you. There are those that will make you hurt yourself. <laughs> and the only good snake is a Dead snake. Thank you. I've got brothers and sisters here today. I also have some of you who are offended at me because you love snakes. And you have pet snakes, which is fine with me, as long as you don't live in Andover. <laughs> or my part of Andover. <laughs> Poisonous snakes come in, killing people left and right. People go to Moses and say, we've, did, we've done wrong. We've complained against God. Help us. Pray for us. Moses prays. God says, strangest thing. God said, Make a brass snake. It's not like we don't have enough snakes already. <laughs> some of you, a lot of you are in medicine. I see some of you out there. You're doctors. You're physicians. You're in medicine. You know the universal symbol for medicine? A brass snake around a pole. And God said a strange thing. He said, carry the pole through the camp, and anybody who looks at the snake and believes will be healed of the snake bite. Now, that's peculiar. Not when you think about it. Because ultimately, God wanted them, to, just like we talked about a moment ago, God wanted them to recognize that their sin had put them where they were. And so when they looked at that snake and they saw that snake, they believed that God could heal them from what they had done wrong to cause the snakes to come in. Jesus said to Nicodemus, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believeth in him or believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. 
Why is that true? I know I'm in overtime. Work with me just a few more minutes. Pretend it's next week. (laughs) Why did Jesus say that? Why did he compare himself to the snake on the pole? Because you understand that when Jesus was on the cross, he was carrying your sin. Some of you come from a Catholic tradition and you have crucifixes. Some of you may be wearing one right now. You may have one in your house. Why is that man on the cross? Why is the Son of God hanging on a cross? It's because he's carrying your sin. Your sin is upon him. That's why the Father of God turned his back on him. And when we look up and see Jesus dying on the cross, we say, our sin is what put him there. And I believe that God can cure me through Jesus of the sin that put Jesus on the cross. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, just so I have to be lifted up on a cross that whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, i got to tell you about Nicodemus as I close out the talk. Uh, He did have one more encounter with Jesus. He came out to see Jesus one more time at night. It was the night Jesus died. All of Jesus' followers had scampered and scurried away. It was night, dark, and alone and abandoned was the body of Jesus, slumped and hanging on a cross. Uh, Nicodemus and a fellow senator who also believed picked that night to come out in the open. And they went to Pilate Powerful men they were, and they said to Pilate, we want the body of Jesus. Pilate said, well, that's not a big thing to me. Still a Rome, you got it, go. Can you see Nicodemus and Joseph as they go out there? And I always wonder, was Nicodemus the one who pulled the nails out of his hands and feet? As he would have pulled those nails out with that claw hammer, he would have said, you know, he told me, Just like Moses lifted up the serpent serpent in the wilderness, even so must Son of Man be lifted up. i got a question for you. Are you born again? not asking you if you're a new springer. I'm not asking you if you're a nice person. I know you are. I'm asking you, are you born again? Because Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, Jesus already told us how. Why not settle that right now? I mean, why not be born again? I mean, if if he's told you the one thing you have to have is what you crave more than anything else, that's a new start. I mean, why not? I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and if you want to join me in this prayer, I'll pray it very slowly between you and God, not between you and me. But I'm going to pray this prayer very slowly. Let's be very still right now. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I must have a Savior. I believe that Savior is Jesus. I believe on Jesus. I have heard. I agree. And now I commit my soul to Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me God's child. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, whether you're in South Auditorium, North Auditorium, if you just pray with me, please don't leave without receiving a gift. I have this for you. It's got a New Spring Bible, a book I wrote to answer some questions, and a DVD. All you got to do is take your Talk to Us card to any info center and just say, I pray with Mark. They will give this to you. Thanks for being here. Next week, we start 2020.